Well, you know, familiarity can be a great thing at times to be familiar with things or something and to have that sense of knowing your way around or knowing your um, about this or that or someone. But at times it can be difficult. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, some of you know, my wife, Grace, and I had an opportunity to be a part of a four-day couples workshop intensive. Anybody been in one of those situations before? There weren't 50 to 100 couples there. There were just a few. So it was a pretty intimate thing. I mean, it was an intensive. And, and so I remember as, as we began, um, they were kind of the get-to-know-you stuff, where they kind of asked some questions, and they asked the husbands, what's your wife's favorite flower? Well, I wasn't really sure, so I waited, and the guy spoke up. The first guy, smiling at his wife, said, Rose, and she gave this big smile back. Yeah. Second guy, rather confidently, said, Daisies. And she grabs his hand. And, and uh, I turned to Grace, honey. I wish, I really was nervous, you know, like, come on, how, how many of you guys are there, right? And I, I said, it's uh, gold medal all purpose, right? Um, and now you know how the rest of the marriage retreat went. No, that's a, that, that's totally a joke. We didn't that didn't happen us. But I did do a marriage intensive, and uh, familiarity can be a good thing, right? But it can also work against you at times. It can be the very thing that limits things in your life and limits you with others. I don't know if you have ever measured that in your life before, that you get so familiar with something or someone or some place that you, you don't even know the treasures of the good things around it. And you may be there right now today. You may be there with another person or things around you, but you may be there with God. You may have grown up in a faith community where you, you really feel you have a real handle on it because those who are in authority taught you these things and you believe these things and, and you're just in this place where you kind of, I, I know God. Well, as we follow the life of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, he finishes his storytelling. There was these sections of parables, in fact, all throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the one who records these five teaching sections. The most popular, most famous being the Sermon on the Mount, and then he shares the life of Jesus and, and how um, he goes about displaying the works of the kingdom. Then he calls the disciples around them to be followers, to do the things of the kingdom. And then he gives responses. And then he goes into this parables, these storytelling, because he's, he's beginning to understand by the responses of people to his teaching that they're not getting it. So he begins to share these stories, these stories that talk about what the kingdom is like, because he wants them to know what it is like to have the rule of God in your life. And because all they can think of, because they were so familiar, they were so aware, they were so read in Scripture that when they taught and, 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 and even thought about the kingdom of heaven and what it was like, what they thought about was this Messiah, this king who would come and he would, with all his force and all his might, bring the people together, pull together this mighty army, set up this kingdom on earth where he would rule through Israel. Israel and through all the nations, and all would be good. But that's not what the kingdom that came with Jesus. The kingdom that came with Jesus was not one of a force of of God's will through displays of power and through His own might to change hearts. 
He came through Jesus and he starts out with this parable of the sower. He says, I came to look for hearts that were like, like good soil so that we would receive the, the, the message of God, the word of God would encounter God and would be open to him and their lives would then grow and it would be like a mustard seed and like yeast and the kingdom would begin to flourish. And I was coming for this purpose and, and, and before this kingdom that would come by force that will come someday, the force of God and his will 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 subdue every will and every knee will bow. But before that was a cross. A cross that that poured out the love of God. So that the love of God seen through this life of Jesus and this death of Jesus and this resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit through power would, would, would woo your heart to respond to Him. So Jesus stops in 13 and tells those kind of stories. And then he begins in verse 53 through about chapter 15, and he begins to share with us, Matthew does, responses to this. And I've titled this series that we're moving into called Your Life Script. Because people tend to live out patterns. They live out things often what they've learned from their family of origin or what they've learned in their schooling and training. And they live out these scripts and often they live in these these patterns of fear or these patterns of familiarity or these patterns of, of, of cautiousness and legalism and all these different things. And so what Matthew is doing is he goes through and shares with us how we can unconsciously limit God by the patterns and by the responses of the people from chapter 13, verse 53, to about, to about chapter 15, the end of 15. And so whether it's too familiar, which we'll look at today, or too fearful, as we look at next week, or too safe, you're afraid to walk on the water, or too rule-bound and legalistic, and on and on the stories go, you might want to pay attention to what's your life script. What do you find yourself living out? Today's life script is about the danger of familiarity. Just too familiar. Being too familiar can actually create a blindness. Can create a blindness to the fullness and wonder of God. Familiarity often breeds closed minds because they're based on false and learned assumptions. Locked into what we think and what we think we know. Because of what we think we know and what we're secure in, out of fear and sometimes out of pride, we just limit God. We can do that individually. We can do that as a church community. And so Matthew finishes his teaching session in chapter 13 and begins to move to the responses, chapter 14 through 15. So let's begin by looking at Matthew as he records it in verses 53 through 58 of chapter 13. And I want to read to you first from the message, because I think often when people in Matthew's day were actually reading these words from Matthew, they, were, they, they probably had more of a ring of, to that language of the day. And this kind of does it. And once we read this, I will actually go through this verse by verse, through, um, not, a tra- not through a paraphrase, but a translation the New International Version. So in the message, when Jesus finished telling these stories, he left there, returned to his hometown, and gave a lecture in the meeting house. He made a real hit, impressing everyone. We had no idea he was this good. How did he get so wise, get such ability, they said. But in the next breath, they were cutting him down. We've known him since he was a kid. He's the carpenter's son. 
We know his mother Mary. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and all his sisters. They live here. Who does he think he is? And they got their noses all out of joint. But Jesus said, A prophet is taken for granted in his own hometown and his family. And he didn't do many miracles there because of their hostile indifference. Let's pray. Father, oh, I'd ask God that you would defend our hearts and minds so that we might be able to have prejudices and assumptions and things that um, keep us from experiencing and encountering and knowing you. I pray for any person. I just pray, God, there, I do sense there's, there's people, there are people here who, who need your Holy Spirit today to offend their mind in order to loosen it to know you more fully. Do that in my heart, God. May nothing that is in me be an obstacle to what you want to do through me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 53, because that's where we start out. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved from there. And so it's important to understand where we have been looking at the life of Jesus at this point. He's been teaching along the lake of Galilee. That's why he has all these farmers' stories as you look at the hillside and all these stories about fishing, very common things that he could point to and they would see and they'd know it was a part of their everyday experience. And he spent much of his ministry where he would be going from town to town, especially in this Galilee area. But he comes to the end of this teaching section. He has just finished um, explaining things to his disciples in their home. And he announces, I think, to him, we're going to go to Nazareth. Well, Nazareth was a number of miles to the east. And, and so it, it, they didn't have trains or planes or automobiles. So they walked and they made their way over to the town. We don't know anything about the conversation, but I'm sure they were fun. I'm sure... There was just all kinds of interesting things going on. But he gets there, and it says that he comes to Nazareth. And and what you need to understand at this point, when he says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, he's now moving. Matthew is taking us and leading us to the next phase, in a sense, of Jesus' ministry, where opposition had begun. Now opposition begins to really harden. There are people who, who don't like this Christ, Messiah, and the gospel he brings. And we'll begin to see it right away in his hometown. And so as you go to verse 54, he says, Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue or the meeting house. And they were amazed. Now, it was probably a pretty small town, Nazareth was. And it was probably one of these places where they had only one synagogue. So it was the one that everyone would go to. And I'm sure that Jesus coming probably brought a crowd. And you would think when the local boy goes off and hits it big, the hometown would be thrilled. You would almost think that as he came into the hometown, there would be a ticker tape parade waiting for him, right? Well, you read here, that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, when you think about hometown boys, you think of, I think of, like the Minnesota Twins. Who do you think of? Joe Maurer, right? Maurer, Chevrolet, Maurer, this, Maurer, that. Do all you can, keep Maurer in town. And that's so here. Jesus comes home, teaches at the synagogue. They are amazed. They're they're amazed at his wisdom. But it's not a humble kind of awe sense of amazement. It's a jealous, contemptuous amazement. 
And the attitudes are really displayed by the questions that come next. If you look at verse 54, as you continue on, the very first question begins to display this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Now, you could read that as just kind of a question of, well, you know, where did he get these things? But if you look at the repetition here of the this, this, and these, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? You read it a little differently. And you can listen to how it said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And then the next line, isn't this the carpenter's son? And the final question, where did this man get all these things? There is a sense, there's a familiarity of contempt, and you can see it, and you can hear it in their very words that betray their attitude. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, there was a time that I was really angry with my mother. I don't know what had happened or what had done. I think maybe my brother did something and maybe she took his side. Probably that's what happened because he was always getting in trouble. Anyway, and it, I, was, I was angry and my dad took me aside to either discipline me or to do something with me. And I looked at him and it was really ticked. And I said, but she told me to do it. And if she would have done this, and if she would have done that, and if she, 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 and he just got a hold of me, he said, Kevin, and he looked at me really sternly, you will not refer to your mother as she. She is your mother. And I was stunned at first, you know, into silence. And I started, I was thinking, so what do I refer to her as? He or it? No. And it just hit me then, and it has hit me even more so now. And he was saying, you call her mother, but more importantly, is the respect and attitude that's underneath those words. And our words betray us. I I just want you to think about it. We so often allow the very judgments and our very attitudes of pride and our attitudes of whatever it may be betray itself in the words we use and what we say to people. We speak about different people in those kind of contemptuous ways. We display in our attitude often through words. And if you listen to people and you get good at it, you can begin to start to say, if you love them enough, you know, Gavin, do you see that this and that and these? Do you understand the attitude under this? Well, he goes on, and the second question even displays this attitude further. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this... Just a carpenter? What's really interesting, when you look at these questions, in one sense, they're really valid questions or rather proper. Where did he get this stuff? Isn't he a carpenter? I mean, you could, you could hear them. They're good questions in one sense, but in another sense, the attitude under them is, is, is so pejorative. It's so diminutive. The Greek word tekton means carpenter, which means one who works with wood. And many believe Jesus was a carpenter who worked with wood. In fact, Justin Martyr in AD 150, in something he writes, Dialogue, said Jesus was a maker of plows and yokes. So that close to the life of Christ, we have one of the early fathers writing about the fact that that more than likely Jesus was one who made yokes and, and he put together plows with wood. But the word tecton can also mean builder in a more general sense, one who works with bricks and stone as a mason. And and when you consider the the homes in in, in the area where Jesus lived, they were all made of mud bricks. So they're more than likely he probably was one who also, as a builder, worked with mud bricks. It could very likely be that he was both a carpenter and builder. And in a small town, that would make sense. 
In fact, it might make sense because when you, when you read it in the, in the Greek, the reference is to the carpenter. There's a definite article there on purpose, so that it most likely implies that he, basically, Joseph and son's company, were both builder carpenters. And so what you have is this ring of familiarity that underlying the question is, who does this guy think he is? We all know he's just a builder. He's just a carpenter. And then he goes on, and the next question again expresses it further. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Not only is he just a carpenter, but let's think about it for a second. We know his lineage. And in fact, if you really want to get dicey about it, there's some concern and question that they had to move away for a while. They lived in another... They, we don't even know about the legitimacy of Jesus. You see what's going on here? By what they know and what they're familiar with, they're starting to push themselves away from any possibility that this Jesus could in any way bring something to them. And aren't his sisters with us? The, the whole idea there is that that means that they simply live here. They're in our community. So we know all about this family. They're no different from us. In fact, they're just blue-collar tradesmen. And so they sum it up. And Matthew does back to the original question. He says, where then did this man get all these things? Now, I want to share with you just for a moment, because this is important. There are times when people will talk to you about the fact that um, they've read Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, or some what they call pseudepigraphical works, which are works that are um, supposedly written at the time of Christ, where they give the name of some author, which really isn't the author, and all this other stuff. But often in there, they'll have stories. They'll have stories about Jesus when he was a kid, and, and, and Jesus was such a prodigy that he would take these bricks, which is interesting that he would be taking these mud bricks, and he would throw them in the air, and it would just go like this, and they would turn into to birds flying away. This precludes that from being a reality. It is really quite clear they didn't see Jesus throwing stones and making birds. It is really quite clear when you read this, they're asking the question, where in the world, not in the sense of location, but where in the world did he get his source of authority to be able to do these works of power and to speak with such incredible wisdom? See, they were all too familiar with Jesus. They knew he was a mere carpenter, just a builder. And just a few years prior to this, just about two and a half, maybe two years prior to this, he was still living at home. He lived at home till he was 30. They knew his mother and his brothers and his sisters. They knew where he lived. They were quite familiar with Jesus. They knew he didn't get some scholarship to Temple Divinity School in Jerusalem, they knew that he wasn't in this early acceptance program at Galilee University. They knew that he didn't get signed by some traveling rabbi as if he was some theological miracle working whiz kid. They knew Jesus. They didn't see mud bricks made into doves. They were familiar with Jesus as someone who dutifully, upon his father's premature death, because it says here, he, he's Mary's kid, right? Joseph is already out of the picture. And so they knew that he worked his father's business as a faithful, reliable son till his brothers were old enough to take over that business so that he could be free to go on his public ministry. 
they were well aware of who he was. You know, this is probably not the first time that Jesus returned to Nazareth after he started his public ministry. In fact, I think this is the second time you can read in even the the story of Luke that Jesus, as soon as he begins his public ministry, he actually goes back, I think, to Nazareth to make an announcement to his own people about his ministry. He actually goes into the synagogue, they're reading in the scroll, and it appears that he takes not where they're reading from, but he, he looks in the scroll, has enough understanding to know where it is, finds the passage where Isaiah makes this proclamation of the Christ who is going to come, who would have the Spirit of God upon him to preach good news, and he would do these miracles, and he reads this before them, and then he closes the scroll. They're all looking at him with rapt attention, and he says to them, what I've just read is fulfilled in me. Now, they're familiar with Jesus. You know how they responded? They were really angry, not just offended, but really angry, so angry that they took him. He had the gall to make the statement that he was this Messiah, this Christ. They brought him, as it says, to the brow of the hill with the intention of pushing him over, ending his life for this incredible blasphemy. But as they were arguing and whatever was going on, it says in Scripture that Jesus just walked through their midst. And left. So now Jesus comes back a second time. He goes into the synagogue. He begins to teach in the synagogue. They've heard stories about his teaching. They've actually heard that he's done incredible miracles. But he comes to the town. And in the town, he doesn't do a whole lot of miracles. It's only rumors about miracles that are out there. They hear his wisdom. But if you read here in verse 57... Underlying all the questions, because of their familiarity, they took offense at him. The word literally translated into English is scandal. It means to scandalize. They were scandalized by Jesus. Other places of Scripture talks about this cross being a scandal, being an obstacle to people's faith, because it's really hard for people to come to the recognition that you can't save yourself, that you actually have to come to the end of yourself. You have to recognize there is nothing in your own power to bring acceptance before God. His love, His grace is all that saves us. Our sin has separated us, and it's, and it's a scandal. The cross is a scandal because it makes you have to get to your knee with every other person and recognize you are no different, a human being made in the image of God, yet who has sinned and needs the grace of God for a life with God. That's a scandal to people who feel that and somehow, hey, I've been in a church, I I really know God's word, I've been a good person, I've been all these things, and I'm walking this road, and God's really proud of me. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me that I can't, in my strength and what I've done, somehow be saved by God? And and the cross is a scandal. It's an obstacle purposely put there to, to open our hearts to his love. And Jesus stands as an obstacle to their ability to believe. Maybe to your ability to believe. Maybe truths about Jesus that, that you, you've just never allowed yourself to really think about because you've had authorities and you've had past traditions and you've had things and, and there's no way you're going to go there because you feel really secure in what you've at least grabbed onto and what you've grabbed onto actually may limit God. What I think is really interesting is every time in the New Testament, when somebody is scandalized by someone, that someone is Jesus. Isn't that interesting? 
These weren't questions to get information. They weren't seeking to know more. They weren't trying to get better understanding of where Jesus really got his authority and power. They knew Jesus. He was familiar. Their mind was made up. It was closed. They were right. There was no possibility of relationship. They were unable to be taught. They knew what they know even even when God in flesh showed up, he couldn't penetrate their closed mind and heart. And I just ask you to think about that. People in the church, we tend to be have some of the hardest minds in that sense. And if God were trying to get a hold of you so that you might encounter him in a new and fresh way, could he? What I think is interesting here is that Jesus is willing to offend the mind in order to open the heart. What I find interesting in the word of God is that he's willing to at times come before us with things that really cause us offense. We get angry. We get, and usually our anger is really a cover for fear because we feel weak. So usually what happens is, is we have something before us that, that we don't agree with or we don't like, and, and we've always heard this differently. And, and so then when you hear it, 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 it kind of causes your undergirdings of security with of what you've fought to be shaken and you can't move from it because your security isn't in God, it's in what you believe. What you think you know. And do you believe the Holy Spirit of God will offend your thinking in order to loosen it up so that your heart might be open to fully receive Him? For me, one of the ways that this was kind of clear to me, and this is going to be kind of silly for some of you, but for some of you it may really have a some sense of, of gravity, I guess. But when I was in seminary, I remember we had all kinds of arguments around it and with quite a bit of passion where some would even get angry around whether Jesus would return pre the tribulation during the middle of it or at the end of it. As if somehow, if you got it right, you would probably get to go at that time. Sometimes we hold to our personal doctrines so tightly as if they will save us. I'm not talking about this doctrine of the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. I'm talking about just things that we sometimes don't know enough about. We hold to our personal doctrines as if they will save us when it's crystal clear. Only Jesus saves. That's the bottom line. Only One's admission of their need and sin and willingness to accept the grace of God opens the door of a life where there is relationship, where you can encounter this God and you know this living, personal God. That's the core of what we're called to believe and to hold on to with all our heart. That's what Paul said in Galatians. If there's any other gospel, anything else that is held to the ground of your being, then even if an angel brings it, may he be eternally condemned. So he goes on in verse 57. He shares a well-known proverb that was said in his day. This wasn't something Jesus made up. Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. That had to have a little sting to it. You guys don't have a lot of respect. Respect is the lowest form of love, really, honor. Like honor your father and mother. It's the lowest thing. Just admit they're a human being and, and because they're made in the image of God, you need to honor 
You don't even have honor in the hometown and in my own family, is what he says, in my own home. Talk about a, a sting on the, the brothers present, the sisters. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. Mark Twain once said it this way, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Familiarity breeds contempt and children. Um, <laughs> and in a moment, I'm going to share with you some of the children that I believe is bred out of contempt. But verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mark's gospel says it far more graphically. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So what I want you to realize, he did not and he could not. This could not in Mark and this did not do any miracles in Matthew is important because Jesus could not because he would not violate his mission. He would not turn his desire for heart relationship into a miracle show that would force people by dazzling displays to come to him. He wasn't going to do that there. And Jesus did not because he would not force belief on anyone who would not freely respond. He will not force it on any person here. He just presents the data, presents the information. He actually shows up with his Holy Spirit and begins to convict your heart. And some of you feel that you know that and you've experienced it. And that conviction is to lead to a sense of repentance that opens your heart and your will so that you say, forgive me. I I want you in my life. I want to be a part of this. I, I desire by your grace to be in an encounter relationship with you. And this is really important. Their lack of faith did not strip Jesus of his power to perform miracles. He performed miracles where often there was little faith with the man with the legion of demons. He performed miracles among the 5,000 when there was a stilling of the storm. It's not that God has no power in the face of no faith. It's just that God exercises his power where he is wanted and where hearts are open to him. And are freely desiring to have his life move through him. And so God will offend your heart. He will offend your mind, your thinking at times, in order to heal your soul, in order to bring the fullness of himself into your life. God goes where he's wanted. And I asked myself, in many ways, does the North American church experience so little of the power of God, whereas you see in some Muslim countries now, where you see in some other areas in Africa and South America, you see there are these displays of power. Is it because we have so much and yet we are so familiar that we won't believe? Is it possible that Jesus showed up in our church and told us exactly what he wanted to do and he laid out exactly how that was to happen? Would we be offended? Well, let me just close with this. Familiarity breeds contempt. It breeds these children, a closed mind, a loss of wonder, and I believe we limit God. Our certainty is based often on prior assumptions. It was in their case. The Christ would not come from the backwoods of Galilee. He would not be born to a no-name town named Nazareth. He would not come from a blue-collar family. He would not be trained as a carpenter. And there's no way he would live with a silly sturdy. Those are assumptions based on facts. 
and the religious authority, they themselves, they were spreading the word that this isn't probably the guy. He doesn't really match up to the way we understand Scripture because the way we understand it. And so what happens for people a lot of times, and I just challenge you to think, you have these past assumptions which you've grown up with that have been taught by your authorities, but have you ever come and said, Jesus Christ, you have given me your word, you've given me other brothers and sisters that I can be an open dialogue with, and you have given me your Holy Spirit, and you've given me a mind, I am going to allow you to lead me into the fullness of you. Because familiarity breeds contempt. And these children that are often bred are a closed mind. And I find so often in the church there's closed minds. We're so certain of our assumptions. We so want to be right. There's no humility in our thinking, no humility in, in the way that we come to things. There's no listening to others with curiosity. Just think about it in this way. I... I one of the things that, I, that happened yesterday is my wife and I have been, been learning some of these, you know, conversational, talking, listening things together. And, and, and my wife said to me as I was leaving to go to a ministry thing yesterday morning, um, can we have a minute just to talk with me about something? And she started to go into the data and what she thought about it and the feelings. That, you know, and, and I said, and, and we did it, and I said, hey, about five minutes, it didn't go real well. And uh, I called her in the car. I said, you know, can we try that again and do this later when I have more time? And I, I apologize that I didn't just say that right away. And as I'm driving in the car after I hung up, I kept thinking to myself, Kevin, it's not about being right, even though I was. No, just kidding. I'm usually wrong. It's not about being right. It's about being in relationship. It's about beginning to know and to understand, to have some humility in my thinking. It's about listening with this incredible curiosity and going, what happened? What's going on? How do they process? What do they think? Do you know what happens so often with people that we think we're trying to reach for the Lord? We want them to know that we're right, and if they will just believe what we believe is right, then, then they're a believer. Not at all. If we listen with curiosity, understand what's going on, why they've derived some of the conclusions they've derived, we then are in a position to really know their heart and be able to have a heart relationship. We're actually in relationship, and we're not trying to be right. Familiarity breeds contempt sometimes with the people we're trying to reach because we've got closed minds. Familiarity, I think, um, leads often to a loss of wonder. So familiar that you fail to appreciate what you have. You lose the wonder of the gifts that are before you every day. You see very little of God in your life because you no longer are in awe of the daily miracles of grace that are so small and sometimes so insignificant, but they're right before your eyes until a tragedy hits. And you look at what's going on in Japan and you wake up and you go, thank you, God, for a house that's over with a roof over my head. Thank you, God, that I have a job. Thank you, God, that I know right now that my kids are probably safe or you're hoping there. And, you know, and you have all these incredible things. Thank you, God, I have clothes. Thank you, God, that I have friends. Thank you, I have a community that I can go to and worship. And it may not be the way I always wanted, but thank you, God, I have all this. But we become so familiar, we lose the wonder. And then we become so familiar that contempt settles in and we fail, you to, we fail to experience the fullness of God. And I'm just going to give you two scriptures here. Because I believe we hear and see and experience only what we choose to hear and see and experience often. That's what they did. How open are you to God's spirit offending your assumptions, your past authorities and your own fear? Listen to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, when Jesus was baptized. Listen to this. 
When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. Now, catch this. Bodily form means simply this. A dove landed on Jesus' shoulder. Ever thought of that? Some who were open, they actually saw the Holy Spirit in that dove. Those who were tuned in and open to the realm of the Spirit saw the Spirit. My guess, most people saw a dove. John 12, 28 through 30. Jesus is, is coming near to the end of his own ministry, and he's yelled in prayer out to the Father, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Some, in fact, many heard just thunder. There was a few who actually thought it was an angel. And then there are some hoping and hungry and more wanting right relationship than to be right, wanting God more than anything else, wanting to dwell in the presence of his very being. One of them we know for sure, John, the apostle, heard the voice of God and testified to what Jesus heard. And Jesus looked at him and said, guess what? I didn't need it, but you did. And so might you. You might need to stretch the categories of your mind. You might need to allow the Holy Spirit to offend you in order that he might come in and show more of his fullness, that you might know his wonder, and that you might live with a way where your mind and your heart is open about relationship and not about having to be right. What's your life script? Father, thank you. Take these words, and as we sing about your greatness, open our hearts to you, we pray. Amen.